0: Hello, and welcome to our weekly message. today's message, Pastor Myron continues our Advent sermon series titled, Jesus in Our Story. This week's message is titled, Good News of Great Joy, from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12.
1: Now, apparently not all Christmas music is as uplifting and soul-stirring as that which we've just been blessed to be a part of. According to a survey that set out to determine the most obnoxious Christmas song. This particular tune, top list. The Little Drummer Boy, narrowly beat out, Do You Hear What I Hear? Now, I don't mind The Little Drummer Boy. And in fact, I really like the Johnny Cash and for King and Country versions. But apparently, others think differently. So what was it, what is it about The Little Drummer Boy that has people identifying it, at least in their minds, as the most obnoxious Christmas song. It's the premise of the tune. And the premise of the tune is this. An uninvited kid shows up by a newborn to pound on a drum. (laughs) If you have children, or perhaps you can remember a day like this in your life when some friend or friends or family members, somewhat mischievously, gave to your kid a drum or some other loud, noisy toy. If you now have grandkids, as my wife and I do, we've had the joyful opportunity (laughs) of doing that to our kids by giving those kinds of gifts to our grandchildren. At any rate, this morning, as we look to God's Word, don't think little drummer boy, think oh holy night. And together, let's study and reflect on the classic Christmas text. It's in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. Luke chapter 2 describes for us, through the writing of Dr. Luke, as he was inspired by the Spirit of God, of the place and night in which Jesus, the King from all eternity, stepped out of glory and into our story. Let's pick it up with verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. By specifically noting events and names, Dr. Luke wants us to understand here that he's not talking fantasy, he's talking history. He was an accomplished historian. And these verses describe specific history. Now focus on the phrase, in those days. In those days, the Roman Empire had reached its apex. In those days, the Roman Empire had achieved maximum territorial expansion. In those days, the emperor over imperial Rome was a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. His given name was Gaius Octavius... And he became Caesar in 27 B.C. There's the guy in statue. In those days, Caesar Augustus ruled all of the known world with an iron fist. In those days, Caesar was moving in the direction of claiming himself to be a god. And in fact, in those days, there were cities in the empire that were celebrating Caesar's birthday, September the 23rd as the day on which their Savior was born. In those days, this Caesar Augustus also issued a decree. It was a mandate that a census be taken for the purpose of taxation. In those days, Caesar Augustus also placed his favor upon a mercenary by the name of Publius Quirinius, who would be the governor of Syria because in those days, Caesar Augustus was working hard to cement his legacy. And what would he do to accomplish that feat for all of history? He would bring Judea into the Roman Empire for the first time ever as a real Roman province. For this to happen the citizens of Judea would have to be taxed heavily in line with the rest of the Roman Empire. And Quirinius, in those days, would be Caesar's guy on the ground to put the machinery in place so that this taxation would, in fact, happen. Now, in those days, this Caesar Augustus, and he gave himself the name. Augustus means majestic. Imagine naming yourself I am the majestic one. That's the name that he gave himself. Again, in those days, Caesar was working hard to make sure that he, the mightiest man on the face of the earth, would be remembered for all time as the greatest guy ever. But in reality, in those days, while Caesar Augustus thought that he was ruling, our God was in fact overruling. Amen? Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. It didn't take long until Caesar's decree that this census for the purpose of taxation be taken all over the known world, it didn't take long until that decree impacted a no-name peasant couple from Nazareth, by the name of Joseph and Mary. Because Joseph was in the royal lineage of Bethlehem's greatest son, great King David. Joseph had to take his wife on an arduous 150-kilometer trek over difficult terrain. It would have taken them at least a week to do so, and she was nine months pregnant. But they made their way to Bethlehem. Now, note it was Bethlehem, not Rome, the political capital of the world, not Athens, the financial capital of the world, not Alexandria, the educational capital of the world, not even Jerusalem, the religious capital of the planet. They went from Nazareth, 150 kilometers, to Bethlehem. Again, because Joseph was in the royal line of Bethlehem's most famous son, King David. Now the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, the first part, bet, means house. Lechem means bread. So Bethlehem literally means house of bread. God who is overruling would see to it that in fulfillment of the prophet's prediction seven centuries earlier, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, that the Messiah... Jesus, the bread of life, would be born in the house of bread. Verse 7. Pardon me, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So Joseph and Mary, having arrived in Bethlehem, also arrived at the moment in history in which Mary would give birth to her firstborn, our Lord Jesus Christ, conceived within her supernaturally by the overshadowing of the Spirit of God. Now, the Scriptures in the NIV, it puts it this way, that there was no guest room available for them. The idea literally is is that there was no room for them in an inn. But when we read that in Scripture or hear that, don't think, like the no vacancy sign is up in the Holiday Inn because inns in those days were no holiday. Typical in the Middle Eastern world and indeed throughout all of the Silk Road was this place of lodging called a caravansary. And I've got some pictures here of them, maybe it'll help you. So in the top left, that's a ruin in Israel of a caravansary. You see it's a walled perimeter, that's where the rooms would have been, and an open courtyard in the middle where animals and goods from people traveling in caravan would be placed. In the bottom right, that's a Persian caravansary. Again, you get a bit of an idea. The rooms, so to speak, are on the perimeter and all of the animals and everything else that travelers would have had was placed in the middle. So it's altogether likely that Joseph and Mary came to a place like that Now when they arrived there, there was no rudimentary room available for them. So what likely happened is this. They were forced into the middle of the courtyard, that open air space, with all of the critters and everything else, and it was there that Mary gave birth to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's some conjecture in that. What's for sure is that in the most humble of ways... Mary gave birth to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. When we read the word manger in those verses too, we may be tempted to think of a quaint wooden structure that appears, for example, in our nativity sets. But in reality, in that part of Israel, wood was scarce, but limestone was plentiful, so it's almost certain that the manger in which our Lord Jesus would have been laid was a hewn-out crude stone structure that would have been hard and cold. And I have a picture of that. That's likely the kind of manger in which Jesus was laying. In other words, uh, some of these things don't quite jive with the nativity set that we may have at home. And that's okay. But just some of these realities around the humble birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the manner in which he came into the world. Now verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you, He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Meanwhile, in the fields, the pastures surrounding Bethlehem, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Again, it's plausible, maybe even likely, that the sheep that those shepherds were caring for were animals that were destined to be used in sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, then, the angel of the Lord burst into their situation to announce to them that the perfect Lamb of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, had been born in Bethlehem. Now, what's incredibly curious about this announcement was the people to whom it was given. Shepherds were on the absolute lowest rung of the social ladder. They were deemed so untrustworthy that their testimony was not permitted in the court of law. Yet it was to such people that this glorious announcement of the birth of King Jesus came. The angel also told the shepherds that they could go visit the child. And they would know that they had found the right baby when they came across a shocking sight. A newborn wrapped in ordinary linen strips of cloth and placed in a cold, hewn-out stone manger. Well, from Luke's timeless narrative then, the truth historically in the word of God of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four takeaway principles for us this morning from this passage of Scripture. And the first is this. These verses speak to us of God's peace. What did the angel say to the shepherds that night? Do not be afraid. Nine in ten Canadians have an identifiable fear. <clears throat> and the top fear for most Canadians, snakes. Women and men, same thing, snakes. Uh, what's your fear? To us today, the message that the angel conveyed to the shepherds in that day reverberates With absolute relevancy, do not be afraid. Because of the manger, because of the baby who was born there, the Lord Jesus Christ who stepped from glory into our story, in him we can live in peace instead of living in fear. When we confess our sins to Jesus, believing that he's the only son of God who would grow and live perfectly and then give his life for us in the cross of Calvary, when we yield our lives in faith to Jesus as our only Savior and Lord, we're forgiven and restored to peace, to friendly relationship with Almighty God. And when we know peace with God, we can live in the supernatural peace of God. This peace that Paul says transcends all human understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The first century Greek philosopher Epictetus wrote these words While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which people yearn more than even for outward peace. In the first century, through brutal repression, the Roman government had forced the Pax Romana all over the known world. It was the Roman peace but the philosopher would look at that and say, oh, that's an external peace. The emperor can't provide anyone peace within their own heart, but our Lord Jesus, the one who is born and placed in the manger, he can. Through faith in him, we know peace with God, and then we can live in the peace of God. The verses speak to us of God's peace. They speak to us of God's person. Think of Mary and Joseph. Mary was likely 14, 15 years of age and a peasant girl from a poor family in an out-of-the-way, kind of no-name place called Nazareth. And what about the shepherds? That They, of all people in that culture, would receive the message of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the story of Christmas. The truth comes up time and time again, and it's this. As Max Lucado puts it, God loves to do... Uh, he talks about the glory... In the ordinary, God loves to do the extraordinary through regular people who are yielded to him. And surely Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, speak to this truth again, that in terms of joining Jesus on mission, experiencing his power flow to us and through us, that we might share the hope of Jesus with others, the only ability that God seeks is our availability, so never doubt the difference that one person can make who has yielded wholeheartedly to the Lord our God. This is the person that God uses to make a difference in this world for time and for eternity. In the verses, we also see the truth of God's presence. The child that Mary placed in the manger was Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet wrote these words for Romeo to speak. He jests at scars that never felt a wound. We do not follow and serve a God who has no scars. The God that we follow has scars on his hands and feet and his side and his back. This baby that Mary gave birth to would grow up and as God incarnate, God with a body, he would enter Fully into the human experience. Experiencing both the joys, the great sorrows, and the great pains of this life. And so he would be called a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. Our Emmanuel, he understands real world challenge. But not only that, that manger. I mean the manger surely speaks of the humility of our Lord Jesus. And it's three times in these verses. 1 to to verse 20 of Luke chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit must want us to think about that. Three times the word manger is there. Imagine the King Eternal being placed in a hewn-out stone and cold manger. It speaks of the humility of our King, but it surely speaks as well of his approachability. You don't need credentials to approach a manger. I mean, even the shepherds could go there in that day. They could go into the middle of the caravansary and go up to that manger. They could step right in there and do that. And it just reminds us, friends, that the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, is also so approachable. We can call out to him, and he will hear us. We can seek him in faith and know that he will receive us. This is our king. And finally, the verses speak of God's plans, God's plans. There again was Caesar the Majestic, thinking that he was writing history that would exalt him. It would all be for the glory and honor of his name. And looking back, we know that that guy was just carrying water for the Almighty. Caesar's decree simply ensured that Micah's prophecy 700 years earlier would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus being born in Bethlehem Caesar's decree simply ensured that the spotlight of redemption, God reaching down in love to rescue a people from their sins to himself, that that spotlight would fall not on Rome, but on Bethlehem. And it's a reminder to us that in this world, when it appears like chaos reigns, our God reigns. And in our lives, God's plans for us are good. And in his time and in his way, he will unfold them in the hearts and lives of all who live in yieldedness to him and no power or principality will get in the way of almighty God unfolding his glorious plans. Let me pray. Father God, for this glorious story, the story of Jesus, the king from all eternity, Stepping out of heaven. Stepping out of glory. To step into our story. Our hearts are moved and thrilled. As we think about that moment in which almighty God incarnated himself. And took upon himself human flesh. So that he could rescue us from our sins by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Our hearts are filled with joy. I pray Jesus all who are watching us online and here in our room this morning, that we would know this Lord Jesus Christ by simple, sincere faith and experience the life transformation that he brings. And then thank you, Lord Jesus, that we get to join you on mission. You love working with and through ordinary people. Thank you that you bring peace to our hearts. We're deeply grateful for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus that your plans for our lives are good and pleasing and you will accomplish them. And thank you that you're God with us and we can seek you and call out to you and you'll hear us and you'll receive us. We're grateful. Jesus, we pray all of these things in your mighty name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining
1: us for a weekly message. Jesus
0: was born 2,000 years ago. Jesus, our Savior, was born. Jesus' birth brings God's peace. God's person, God's presence, and God's plans. As Chuck Swindoll puts it, At Christmas, a tiny gift, strangely wrapped and silently given, came our way. The indescribable gift of God's Son. The newborn was placed in a manger, and we are reminded that the Christ child brings us peace. And as we are yielded to him, he'll do a work through us to bless others. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is approachable, and he rules in our world and in our lives. If you're experiencing challenges or hardships and would like prayer for anything going on in your life, or if you'd like to learn more how to invite Jesus into your story and begin a relationship with Jesus, please email help at hhachurch.com That's help, H-E-L-P, at H for harvest, H for hills, A for lines, church, C-H-U-R-C-H.com. And we'd love to talk with you and pray with you and help you experience the love that is available to us in and through Christ Jesus. Now these words from 1 Timothy 1.17 all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal King, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. May God bless you as you go into the remainder of your day to be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus.